All right, welcome back, everybody. So, hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we're going to let our guest, Mr. Nicholas Wood-Smith, uh, introduce himself to you guys. So Nick, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, hold on. Do you go by Nicholas or Nick? Uh, both are fun. Uh, okay. Thank you for having me. Yeah, by the way. Um, you can call me interchangeably Nick and Nicholas, just to confuse the transcriptor. Um, <laughs> uh, um, so I'm Nicholas Woodsmith from Cape Town, South Africa, and I'm the author of the Urban Fantasy Cat Drummond series and the Military Sci-Fi Wolfmancer series. So if you notice that uh, on this one, the video is audio only, that is because he is uh, in a place with not the best Wi-Fi. So we have found that just throwing the cover up and doing audio only helps uh, lower the bandwidth requirements. So unfortunately, you don't get to look at his smiling mug. But uh, <laughs> if you hop on over to his show, the show notes where he's got his links, he's got some pretty cool pictures of stuff he's doing on his Instagram. So so if you're really curious, you could check it out. And I have to say, having looked at his avatar from his Instagram, uh, his avatar game is a lot better than mine. So I'm a little bit jealous, but <laughs> we do what we can, I guess. All right. So we uh, we appreciate you coming on. So the next part of the introduction, dear listener, is how we found them. So we met uh, in some of the authors groups we're both in, uh, probably when we when I started writing. So it's been been a couple years we've been talking back and forth. Uh, we've tried to get him on since we rebranded for a while, but you know he's in Cape Town, South Africa, so that's plus seven from EST, uh, which means that scheduling around both of us was a little bit of a nightmare. I think it took us two months before we even got a calendar date that worked. Mm. But uh, we're glad you're here, uh, despite the magical wizardry that is time zones, because they, <laughs> they destroy me every time. Yeah. yeah the time travel is hard, especially when I'm from the future. How, how is it in the past, by the way? It's, it's good. So that's one of the things that confuses me sometimes, when you'll see posts that you're looking at, but the post date, because it's from someone in like Australia or South Africa or whatever. So on there, it says the post date when they post it. So it'll say like, tomorrow's date for me, and I'm looking at it today, and he gets that little bit of, you know, you, the Twilight music plays in your head. I have a friend who uh, studied in the United States and he celebrates uh, U.S. holidays, but he's always celebrating it before you guys do. Oh, that's just an overachiever. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So since we were talking about magical space, wizardry, we are going to ask you the religion question. Star Wars, Star Trek or Firefly? Uh, Star Wars. No question. I like Firefly. Do not like Star Trek. <laughs> and uh, Star Wars just uh, besides the trilogy that didn't happen. I just adore Star Wars, especially if we're talking about the series, Clone Wars and The Mandalorian. Yeah, and I liked a lot of the books that came out in the 90s. I was mm. a big fan of the, I guess it's not canon anymore. Um, yeah, it's canon in your heart. That's where it matters. Yeah, well, I, I get why they do it. So George Lucas had this problem. It's the yes problem. Someone said, hey, mm. this is a cool idea. And he'd say yes. And he never worried about continuity. And since everybody wanted to write about Han, Leia, Luke, you know, in the crew, <laughs> you would end up having them in multiple places where Canon already said it takes X number of days to get from here to here. Uh, and there's no way he could be in two places at once. So, you know, when Disney bought it, they kind of had to. Now, mm. what Disney did with it once they owned it, it's a whole nother podcast that we'll, we'll get into someday, <laughs> but we'll, we'll leave the house of the mouse alone. But, uh, but yes, yeah, so I get why they had to, but still the stories were, they're amazing. Did you read the uh, Red Wing Squadron books or Rogue Squadron no. books, excuse me? Sadly, I've never read any of the now the, the Star Wars Legends. I've only read the new uh, um, 
called Throne Book by Timothy Zahn. And I really enjoyed oh, yeah, it. Yeah, those are good. And I was going to read the lot. Uh, uh, so I got the first one. I was going to read the next ones. But then everywhere, I, all the reviews were just saying that the entire thing is just has um, Darth Vader whining. And I was like thinking, okay, well, I'm on a budget at the moment. Do I want to just read a book about where there's a risk of Darth Vader whining throughout the entire thing? But if it's more than that, I will probably go back and read it. Yeah. It just that. <laughs> I need to get back into it. I'm, I'm all over the place. I had this problem for a while and I went to a 12 step program. So, so we're good, but I would see a book and I would buy a book and I would buy more books than I had time to read. So I bought more books than I was reading. And now I'm at the point where budgets are tight. Inflation is a thing. And I'm like, huh, I've got all these books I already bought that I never read. So I'm starting to go through those and mm. uh and see if i can i can wait out the hard times <laughs> <laughs> in the bunker <laughs> you yeah. know your cat you got your canned beans and your books yeah <laughs> i actually thought about um seeing what's on the library too there's some sort of somebody was telling me there's an app you can get to read like check out digital version of library books mm. which has me thinking maybe it's time to start putting my books in those apps i don't know how that works but yeah it's uh it's one of those things where you do what you got to the cool thing is is when you're an author people want you to read their stuff too so sometimes because of the podcast we'll get people giving us free books which also adds to the books i own but i haven't had time to read yet so if i ever decide to quit writing and quit podcasting i've probably got enough books to last me for a year of yeah. reading before i'd have eating to buy another might one be the problem there. eating might be a problem yes <laughs> all <laughs> right <laughs> since uh since this is the polytheistic podcast uh, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, or Wheel of Time? So now this is always an unfair question because Lord of the Rings is just like, it's religion. I, I, I cannot like ever reject it because it's the classic. It's the originator of the genre. But I have to admit that I enjoyed reading the Wheel of Time more. Um, and that that's just going to, uh, and I'm probably going to be completely destroyed for that. But when reading both in high school, the Wheel of Time made more of an impression on me, maybe because it's longer maybe because it actually has more action in it and more characters. And while Lord of the Rings is amazing, it's a little bit distant. It's as if you're reading mythology rather than reading a story where you're you know, present with these characters. I think part of it is the product of his time. So the language is mm -hmm. a lot more flowery too. I like it. I like I all the descriptions. He, he sets the standard on the amount of description. Now I will say sometimes he goes a little overboard, but that's back to the flowery prose that he likes. Yeah. But the, the modern trend where you describe nothing and you just have to leave it to my imagination, if you write a book and I can't tell you what the character looks like, I've got a problem with that. But I also mm. recognize that in modern day, I'm the abnormal one in that regard. So I, I, I always have... Healthy middle. Yeah. Like reading like Dan Simmons Hyperion, um, I think the first two books are exceptional. And um, and I think it's a nice, healthy uh, um, combination of description. I can have a very good idea of what Hyperion looks like and, um, and what these characters are like. But at the same time, I'm also growing attached to these people. And it's not over the top. When in the second two books, they're literally there's like two or three pages describing a mountain range that they then promptly leave and never return to. So hmm. and, and that's just really irritated me. I think it's all just about a little bit of balance. So do you feel like he, because I haven't read those yet. They're on my list of classics I need to read. Yeah. Um, do you think it was that he was trying to pad word counts when he was doing that? Or he just fell in love with the setting and he got a little lost in the sauce? I think maybe the latter. I, I think, at least according to my opinion, I don't think the second two books should have happened. They, they, I didn't enjoy them that much. Also because I felt that mm. it took an amazing ending from the first two and kind of did a little bit of a, a lame cop-out. Yeah. But at the same time... They're, if you adore the first two and you just you, you haven't had enough, then 
who am I to say stop reading? <laughs> so does it feel like the uh, literary equivalent of, oh, it was all a dream to, to re fix the timeline? So it wasn't that, but it feels like that. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So we at the Blasters and Blades, we like both the fantastical and the scientific. So which was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy? Fantasy. So um, the reason I actually like sci-fi to a large extent is because I also like guns and spaceships, but I also like magic So and fantasy. And I like the way that I like being able to read a fi uh, fiction where I can be purely escapist and not have to say, well, this is why this thing works. Ironically, and this is a social science thing, because maybe that's because I am a social scientist. So I want things to make sense from a social science point of view. But if you're going to give me a computer that runs on rainbows, um, I'm going to be like, yeah, sure. <laughs> Friendship is magic. Um, <laughs> yeah, I actually, yeah. you know, oh, I yeah. studied sociology in school, too. It was one of the things I was minoring in. So I get like the fascination with how people sort of form societies. But nowadays, I think the populace is so politically jaded on those types of issues and we're going to skirt around this because we're an apolitical podcast that if you try to get creative just to do something different on how societies are uh, sort of set up to you know to make each culture slightly unique you run the risk of everyone's like oh you're taking that side are you and i'm like no it's just a book mm -hmm. i don't necessarily agree with everything i write yeah no i and i think for me the main thing is like so i've looked into like quite a lot of medieval politics and stuff and i think most people don't really understand how different politics was back in the medieval day. So they they run the risk of being like, oh, well, it's basically the, you know, the United States, but, you know, with swords and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but there's a reason why st modern day states couldn't work back then. Like you need extremely good communications. You need um, an efficient taxation system. You need an efficient professional military to have this sort of, you know, professional state. When so many books are basically just like, you know, oh, well, no, the king basically just has absolute authority and doesn't ever have to, you know, jostle for any sort of power. Ironically, Game of Thrones and, you know, that that movement of grim, dark, political, dark fantasy actually solved this to a large degree because they brought that realism into politics where they're like, actually, humans are selfish wankers who are going to constantly jostle for power and that there is no such thing as the absolute state, especially not in the medieval day. I mean, there's a reason Machiavelli wrote what he wrote because he was trying to get there. And that's an so ex they, exceptional as well. <laughs> I think the other thing you need is in order for the concept of something as sort of esoteric and... and um, not as easily pinned down as like nationality and this is where I'm from. Uh, that doesn't work as well when you're struggling just to put food in your belly. Like when every day mm -hmm. is a grind to survive, the rest of that doesn't matter as much. And so that that's a huge factor too. So stabilized, I mean, just the, the role of um, proficient farming uh, can never be understated. You know, like if you look at the times when everyone was hungry, like the rest of that didn't matter. That's when you ended up more tribal and more local. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, that's that's part of the fun of playing with for me for science fiction is you can sort of recreate everything just you know hop to another planet and you could do a little bit of everything um so many ideas to play with in so little time mm. and i think that to, to return to the original question i'd say that i like social science fiction because that's what i understand i like to play around with those concepts like we've been discuss discussing but i think that i tried for a while to get into the actual technology side of it but for me my the type of sci-fi i like is like warhammer 40k i want rule so of space cool. fantasy I want space fantasy effectively but the problem is that's not a 
that it, it, it's a category that a lot of people don't recognize so i just say okay sci-fi it's just it's sci-fi <laughs> okay. um sure. but i would say it is space fantasy science fantasy whatever that's i like the rule of cool i want my power armor with my chain sword to flinging a fireball while firing a laser gun so since you mentioned power armor who has the coolest power armor in the wild field of uh you know, speculative fiction what's your favorite um, what, the, the depths of starties from Warhammer 40k is just like it, really cool so it's really it's really hard to think about anything other than that um i love the power armor as described in starship troopers not the movie the uh, the books well the book um i love the way it was described and i love the um the problem is it hasn't been depicted that well in media. It, it was depicted kind of well in that weird, um, I think it was just like a CGI thing of Starship Troopers. I haven't watched it yet, though. I just saw a few scenes on YouTube. Um, but I think it has to go to Warhammer 40K, just, uh, from my personal views. Just the, the, well, that's because Warhammer 40K is designed to be as insanely cool as possible. They just throw reality to the wind. Okay, I like the T series of power armor from Fallout series. So that my favorite oh, really would be cool. probably yeah. yeah, the was it the fifty one Bravo from Fallout New Vegas? I think it's I so would have. Cool. I, I think I would have agreed with you if I hadn't played Fallout Four, where I felt they um they kind of took the cool factor away from it by making it too common and making it a little bit too. They made it like the equivalent of plate mail, which is not supposed to be plate mail. It's supposed to be you're a walking tank, right? Um, and that's what I think that, uh, and, but it is, it is really cool. I do agree with you there. I have a, a special place in my heart for that's one of the, the games that I don't have time to play. Cause if I played it, I would never leave the world. Yeah. <laughs> that and Skyrim are right up there for me of, of my mm, drug of choice. Indeed. Yeah. New so, Vegas is amazing. I, I finished yeah. it. Um, three playthroughs. Um, I've done an NCR playthrough. I've done Yes Man, Mr. House. I cannot bring myself to do a Caesar's Legion one. I try, but I struggle to be a bad guy. <laughs> yeah but they make yeah. such a good bad guy so <clears throat> yeah they, they do to a degree but like then you get people who genuinely think they're like good people and i'm like dude they're, they're literally they're not even efficient they don't even have guns they're just like we're, we're, we're like t t um, um authoritarian primitivists <laughs> yeah there's some there's some room in that canon for for the weird weirdness but mm. the uh yeah i i never did the caesar's legion i did like the ncr playthrough that was mm. that was always kind of a fun place for me to, to go. But we're not here to talk about Fallout New Vegas. We're here to talk about you and your book. Oh, so yeah. what was your first memory of engaging in speculative fiction? So when I was um, very, very young, I uh, I was playing the game Age of Mythology. Now, this is like first, first, first. I think I was probably like, when Age of Mythology came out. So I must have been, we can, we can check that. But I was in single digits. And um, there was a, a, a quiz, the tutorial was very hard for someone of my age. So I got stuck on it so much that I decided to write fan fiction for Age of Mythology of what I think should happen and what would happen when I finally finished this tutorial. Um, and I wrote quite a lot of that and I did like little comics of it. So that would be the first time. And that from there developed into a little bit of in more interactive fiction where I would create campaigns for D&D for my friends in school. So that would start around... 2006 so that was probably the first time when i started um getting people to really like read my fiction rather than you know just scribbles that i would hand to my parents and then they would pretend to be able to read it um <laughs> and so and from the dnd it went on to making missions in uh, video games and then after that with the missions in video games i realized 
hey, I, I love video games, but there's, uh, there's a lot of information I'm wanting to put down, a lot of like stories that I'm wanting to create that is limited by the this canvas. So I decided to write a book in around 2009. Okay, so for I just Googled it. Age of Mythology came out in 2002. So if you were mm. in single digits, man, you're just a baby. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I must have been uh, seven or six. Wow. Okay. Now I feel old. Uh, so what is it about <laughs> speculative fiction that you love? So I love just the, I love the escapism, but I also love how, so on one side, I can use it to just escape from the stress of life. Also, because it makes sense when a lot of things in real life kind of don't make sense ironically it's just like life doesn't have rules life doesn't have structures doesn't have something that you expect when the thing about fantasy and speculative fiction is once you learn the rules for that world they make sense it's something which you can uh, uh, which you it's kind of comfort comforting to know that okay this is how this magic system works they can solve problems this way or this is the way the world was created um you know if you're going to go into like somewhere really and with token stuff um and you know, like that, like good is going to eventually triumph over evil, that sort of thing. But even with stuff like um, Game of Thrones, there's a sense of catharsis that this world is so unpleasant that it makes my world look good. Um, so, what I love about uh, speculative fiction that is, uh, either will present an escapist universe which is better than my own, which allows me to escape the uh, the unpleasantness of real life, or it presents one that's so unpleasant that makes mine look better than uh, bare by comparison. Okay. That would probably be why I like it. So how did your love of speculative fiction <clears throat> translate into you writing stories? You mentioned that you wrote stories at the end of Age of Mythology, but when did you go from, okay, it's a hobby, I like to jot these ideas down to mm -hmm. let's do this for real? So the first book I started writing, 2009, grade seven, um, and that was a, and the reason I started writing it was because I, so my mom uh, create my love of high fantasy. And I still have that high fantasy. I'd still say is my, uh, that epic Lord of the Rings, Wheel of Time, Rift War, my main, they're my main squeeze. But, um, I also like guns. I also like modern warfare and I wanted, uh, and at the same time, I didn't have anyone at the time. Internet in South Africa was still kind of a limited thing. And also, you know, being that young, you don't really know what to Google effect effectively. So I didn't really know about military science fiction or military space opera and stuff. So I decided, okay, I want high fantasy, but I want there to be guns in it. I want there to be spaceships and aliens and stuff like that. So I decided, okay, I'm going to take what I know about the high fantasy that I enjoy. Wheel of Time, Rift War Saga, all that. But I'm going to set on another world. There's going to be aliens and there's going to be guns. And I started writing over years. And by 2013, when I was in high school, I finished the first book. And that was Fall of Zona Knox. And uh, the book wasn't that great. Uh, some people claim to like it, and some people still claim to like it. I think that they're just being nice, or maybe they just genuinely do like it. I'm not sure. But uh, since then, I then uh, started writing some sequels for it around uh, in my final year of uh, um, university when I realized that I didn't actually want to be an academic. I wanted to write fiction. And after I actually met another indie author, um, who actually showed me this is possible and it showed me some of the ropes. I so I wrote some sequels for it, realized they were being held back by the fact that, you know, I was trying to sell them off of the first, uh, the first book I'd ever written, rewrote that book a lot, rewrote it again recently, actually. Um, but um, not too substantially, more just a repackaging, just a few things, shifting a few things around. Um, and, um, and then also in 2019, realizing I also really just wanted to get into fantasy 
and decided I wanted to write an urban fantasy and that's the Cat Drummond series. And um, and I think in the future, I'll probably actually finally go to what I sh should have written in the first place, which is just medieval high fantasy. <laughs> um, so it's just a long journey to get back to the beginning, which is my first love, which is medieval fantasy. So who was that indie author that helped you in the beginning? Uh, Jason Wibberloff, another South African um, it, it, um, indie sci-fi author. Um, I was introduced to him through a uh, mutual friend, just posting. I, uh, like, I shared something on Facebook, I can't even remember what, and a friend of mine tagged him, and then we just started talking. I don't think I've heard of him. Does he still write? Uh, not a lot. Not anymore. Okay. Yeah. He wrote um, Defragmenting Daniel was his um, the series that... Uh, Introduced uh, that I read of his was very good. It was like a, a biopunk thriller about a guy who has to, um, who in order to pay off his fees for being in an orphanage, they sold his part, like his organs. And now that he's graduated from or the orphanage, he wants to go find his parts and get them back by any means necessary. Oh, that's dark. Yeah, it's really cool. It's a, it's a, it's a good uh, um, series. I have to check that out. All right. So many authors let their own real life experiences influence the stories they tell. So do you think there are any specific moments that were sort of shaped the way you are as a creator? Uh, I'd say it's a general thing. When you try to distill, there's definitely a lot of me inside my stories. Um, if you're going to get quite dark and maybe or even like a little more sentimental, um, a common theme throughout a lot of my uh, books is coping with death. And it's to a large extent, I lost quite a lot of loved ones when I was quite young. So to a huge, so a lot of my books is the characters trying to understand and come to, uh, um, and come to terms with losing loved ones or just understanding death for themselves and others. So that's definitely a few moments that uh, have influenced. Then there's also just, that sometimes I'll have experiences that I will like, oh, this this experience, you know, make a cool scene in the book. Like there's a nightclub scene in my, um, in Cat Drummond, and that's straight out of a an experience which I had in real life. Just, you know, the thumping music that, that, that I literally just took the descriptions of what I was like in the nightclub and just put it in the scene. Then added some killing. Um, as you do. Yeah, as you do. <laughs> just, just, <laughs> when in doubt, add killing. <laughs> um and um, especially with the Cat Drummond series, because it is set in Cape Town, my hometown, there's a lot of real life influence, especially with locations. And um, I'll draw, and Cat will drop in a lot of things, which would be some of my, you know, my own personality and my own experiences and views just dripping in. Um, so maybe a little bit with her politics, but also with her uh, personality, her views on music or people, or fellow students at <laughs> both of our alma maters. Um, we both have a similar view of students from UCT. <laughs> oh, so so she went to the same college. Well, you used your your college. Mm. Uh, so she's um, so we both went to uh, the University of Cape Town, and um, the premise of the part of Monster Hunter is that she is a university student who hunts monsters using a an app called Monster Slayer, which is basically Uber but for monster hunters. So if you have trouble, the police aren't going to help you. So you um, quickly just put in like a little panic thing, put in as much information as you can and a monster hunter will claim the bounty and come in and try to save you. And these corporations that do it, but she's a freelancer. So she's one, so she handles the small cases which the big corporations don't see as large enough to waste their time on. So her rates are lower, 
but she also um and she handles but she handles a smaller fry so the, the series is about her growth in this career and the world that she lives in where magic is now out in the open in the world and what's happened as a result of that and you know i, I love my um my spe uh, uh, speculating about what would happen under certain changes so in this world uh, well for example um the the magic comes into the world in the cat drummond universe when the gulf war is still ongoing so a lot uh, um planes are being taken out of the sky by dragons and with surges that disable electricity so um by the time so 40 years later by the time that cat drummond is set um there's actually a united states military nation uh, uh, um, state in kuwait controlling kuwait um so it's it, and let me say it's called american kuwait i've got a little bit of an article on it what happened uh, on my website um so then they just i like just throwing things like that together the, the soviet union collapses completely um and gets annexed a little bit by odin who now owns scandinavia um so i like just throwing Things. Yeah, there's also the Monkey King. If you're familiar with the Monkey King from the Journey to the West, uh, he controls uh, a third of China. Interesting. So you could basically tour Cape Town, South Africa, and the local stuff just by reading this book, which is kind of mm -hmm. cool. It's always it's always nice to see places you haven't been. Uh, I think some of the the Amazon market could be very American centric, so it's always fun. Now with spelling. Did you go with the American spelling or did you go with like the more traditional, uh, I guess, European like color instead of color with the U? It's still pronounced color. Well, I know. I'm just, I'm alliterating for effect for the listeners. Yeah, yeah. I went with UK spelling. Um, it's what I grew up with. And also my editor uses UK spelling. And I think that um, my editor it makes with it the different though. That's not a bad thing. Mm, it's um, the only real difference is just adding the U most of the time. Um, and then also there's a, a, we use S's where sometimes you guys will use Z's. That OZ, okay, yeah. Cool. So uh, let's transition away from the writing side and talk about things from a fan angle. So have you got any cool fan art or cosplay of your characters yet? So I've got a lot of cool fan art, which is uh, available at nicholaswoodsmith.com um, slash fan art, fat, well, fan hyphen art. Some really cool stuff. Um, a lot of like illustrations and some people have like put together um, like uh, little drawings and renderings of what they think cat swords should look like. Some people have made like 3D models using like Hero Forge or what they think the character should look like. Um, there's some cool uh, little like chibi-like cartoons. So there's some, definitely some fun stuff there. Um, no cosplay yet, sadly. I'm I'm, I'm hoping for some. I've, I, I keep um, uh, just suggesting to the fans that they do some cosplay every Halloween. But I think that with lockdown there probably hasn't been a lot of um, opportunities for that uh, yet but hopefully that will change well yours you know the given the urban fantasy just looking at the cover it seems like that they would have more opportunities to do it like something that wrote where you know for instance a book that's heavy on the power armor like that's gonna be really hard for someone to cosplay yeah but, but what you have like that's that's a lot more i think doable mm. so that's that's in your favor definitely um, no it's, it's a lot it's a lot easier to get a hold of i uh, actually in fact i have most of the stuff i could do a gender bent cat drum and cosplay because i have a well you might see in some of the fan art that one of her signature weapons is a c96 broomstick a broomstick handle mauser pistol and i've got a replica of one of those i love it so much it's such a cool looking gun 
Um, and I've got a bunch of swords. Um, the only thing I lack is that she lay in the series, she does get a um a flaming coat. So that might be a little bit hard to pull off. If you figure it out though, you'll be in the yeah. money. Yeah, I need to get Elon Musk on that. Maybe because huh. I'm a fellow South African, he might help. <laughs> yeah, you should just call him up. Be like, hey. I want a flaming coat. Do it, bro. <laughs> <laughs> you made the flames, sorry. Right? You might help. He did. All right. Wow. I'm going to try not to choke laughing. I had to mute <laughs> myself for a second. Um, so has anybody ever asked for your autograph? Um, so yes, but uh, mostly friends and family as it is. And then they always regret it because I've got a really bad signature. <laughs> he picked the wrong time to tell the joke, people. I know, I know. I was mm. drinking water as he's doing that and I almost <laughs> died. But other than that, so your signature isn't very neat. So basically you've got a signature of a doctor. So, you know, there's that. <laughs> oh, no, it's, 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 it's tidy. It just doesn't look like a signature. I, so I was always bad at cursive. So I decided, hey, I want to, I, I can't imit, uh, um, replicate a cursive signature, you know, like a traditional cursive signature. So I decided to make this weird looking Japanese looking symbol that I could, you know, it was quite geometrical, so I could always do it. And then the, I was considering changing it until I was um, leaving a bank, which I really hated. It was like a terrible bank, terrible customer service, terrible, like everything about it was terrible. And I went there to like sign the forms to like leave my account. And they complained about my signature. And in my head, I'm like, you know what? This this is it's now certain. This is the signature I'm going to stay with for life because the bank I hate so much hates it. So it must be good. <laughs> it's a solid plan. I actually applied for a Marine ROTC scholarship when I was in high school. Uh, ended up getting a, a full academic one, so I didn't use it. But while I was applying for it, one of the things you had to do was you had to write an essay on something. I don't even remember what the topic was, but you had to handwrite it in cursive to turn it in. I suspect the handwriting in the cursive was partly just to see, um, or, you know, to make, I guess to ensure like that you wrote it, because it'd be easy to copy and paste something from the mm. internet, right? I spent more time trying to practice the cursive to write this to turn it in than I did on the dang essay. And like, I had to like, I was literally the first time I wrote it because I was never great at cursive, so I just never used it. I was always writing normally was quicker for me. Mm. So I would take, like, write it a letter at a time, and it looked like a, a five-year-old trying to write cursive. And I had to just keep practicing until I could get the dang letter right. Mm. I, I'm convinced the reason I didn't get that scholarship was because my cursive was still not good enough. <laughs> was like, I don't know what this guy's smoking, but we don't want anything about it. It's such a shame. He, he would have made, he would have been, deserved a scholarship, but you know, his cursive just wasn't up to scratch. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, have you spotted anybody out in public reading your books? So, the unfortunate thing is that um, South Africans do not really have good delivery fees from Amazon. And I only really have my books available from print on demand on Amazon. So, I haven't, I've unfortunately not seen anyone reading my books, you know, the paperback copies. Now, they possibly. Um, could be re reading it on any of the Kindles or their phones, but it'd be very creepy to look over their shoulders just to confirm it every single time. Fair. So for you, dear listener, if you see anybody reading his books, you should snap a picture, join his newsletter, and send it mm -hmm. to him. He would uh, he would be interested in seeing that. Of course, maybe ask the person before you snap the picture because that could nah, also be creepy. I want the reactions. <laughs> ask him after. <laughs> Was it they say better to beg for forgiveness than ask for permission? Exactly. <laughs> And this is how you ended up in jail. All right. Yeah. So 
finally, <laughs> we'll move past Creep Town. And uh, what's the weirdest or funniest interaction you've had with a fan since you started writing? Um, so, not necessarily from fans, but I the part time Monster Hunter Facebook uh, page is constantly being inundated by people with very bad spelling and grammar begging me to give them free movies. Uh, movies. It's only that page. I run a lot of other Facebook pages, but that page, for some reason, keeps getting inundated with requests for free movies. Now, for other fans, what's quite weird is I get a lot of people hitting on Cat, and some of them I don't think understand that I'm not Cat and she's not real, and are trying to basically declare the undying love for her, ergo, like me, <laughs> me, um, through email, and that's kind of very funny and creepy at the same time. At least they really like Cat. She made an impression on them. Yeah, that is, um, or and they like the cover artist or the cover model, I guess, whoever that is. Mm. So, yeah, no. all right. So this is the that is kind of creepy. I don't think anyone's topped that yet. So, <laughs> I don't know. Well, uh, if if the next guest that comes on, maybe they can beat you. But for, for now, you're right up there with the weirdest. With the it's gonna, it's gonna be the, a creep arms race now. <laughs> yeah, it is, and I, I'm I'm here for it all day, twice on Sunday. So this is the part where we talk about everything Nicholas Wood Smith has written. So can you give us the Reader's Digest version of your body of work? So I've got the Cat Drummond series, which is uh, 14 novels in the main series with uh, two spinoffs that were initially spinoffs, but I'd say that they're actually, if you want to truly appreciate the main series, you should read them. They follow other characters, but it feeds into the work. Um, and then there's also three uh, short stories for the Cat Drummond universe as well. Then there's my sci-fi. Um, I'm re-releasing the sci-fi. The first book, Full Zone Knox, was re-released earlier um, last month. And the second book is coming out this month. Third book, month after. For, uh, fourth book, month after that. But book five and six may be delayed because just a lot of stuff happened this year. So I may ha they may be delayed. Um, sorry about that. Um, there are a lot. And I have four sci-fi short stories for the Wolfman's universe as well. So that's the Wolfman's uh, universe. I also have a bunch of short stories on that you can read for free on my website, nicholaswoodsmith.com. And um, they're just, you know, nice flash fiction. <clears throat> if you just enjoy it, they involve or industrialized orcs, some D&D &D adventures. Um, another one about a guy named Faribius Peddler who goes through bureaucratic trials in order to find a, the chosen land where he can become an inventor. That was pretty fun. Um, so that would probably do. Yeah, that, that's in essence is all my work so far. So uh, do you do a lot of anthologies then since you're writing all these short stories? Um, so I did um, two anthologies. So I struggle to work with other people a lot, not because I get in fights with them in a thing. I actually, I, in general, it's always quite cordial. It's just that it is a little bit of a stress, just uh, um, having to constantly, you know, backwards and forwards when sometimes I just be like, no, I just want to hit the button now. And I don't want to have to like worry about what if other people are ready for me to hit the button. Um, so no, I don't really do a lot of anthologies. It's also just because I, um, the anthologies I've have been, and I don't think really helped my career that much. I'd rather write the story and then just give it, uh, sell it or give it for free to my readers. It's just to thank them for being my readers. Okay. All right. Well, this is the moment, dear listener, where we pause for a moment and we shamelessly shill for the man with our sponsor. Here comes your next romp in the graveyard. In Hunters for Hire, a new urban fantasy adventure by best-selling author Jonathan Yanez. 
A guy down on his luck puts sign twirling and rideshare driving on the back burner to track down the supernatural for a pretty penny. Find out what happens when John Hunter enters the secret underworld. Download your copy and start listening today. Now available on Amazon and Audible. All right. Thank you for sticking with us through that commercial interlude. Um, and we, we managed to get through it. So uh, that was where we got to listen to everything that Nicholas Woodsmith has written. But today, if you're looking at the screen, and he mentioned it in the beginning, we are here to talk about his Cat Drummond series, specifically book one, part-time monster sl- hunter, excuse me. <laughs> so what was the premise for this uh, for this book in this series, the, the world you created? So the elevator pitch is it's about a university or college, as you guys would call it, student who hunts monsters to pay for her tuition and her bills. So to expand from that, it's set in a world in which magic has been the norm for the last few decades. It it was our history up until 1991. Then a portal opened and uh, and monsters and magic started pouring into the world. 40 years later, 2030s, Kat is an orphan but has managed to like scrape together, you know, you have to be an orphan. It's fantasy. You're not allowed to have parents. Um, and so she's scraped together and she's managing to study, um, you know, very appropriate undead studies and history, you know, very, um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, just an appropriate combination of uh, majors at the university of Cape town. And, but she also through a freak accident, which you'll reveal how this happens throughout the series a ghost of a knight from another world is now possessing her and living in her head. And together, they hunt monsters through an app that functions like Uber, as I think I mentioned earlier. So that's the main premise. And from there, you get introduced to this world. You get introduced to her career as it's a fake, uh, her rising through the ranks to become a recognized professional monster hunter in a magical cape. I'm just now called Hope City for kind of humorous reasons that you'll find inside the story. I don't want to spoil that. Um, but it's uh, uh, the main reason I started writing was just I came up with this idea that I just wanted to write about an urban fantasy about a university student who hunts monsters, part-time monster hunter. And that's uh, it's the title was the premise that made me want to write the series. Okay. Um, and it fits, I guess you had mentioned you were writing this, uh, coming up with these ideas while you were in college yourself, right? Mm, yeah. So that is uh, definitely fun. Now, did um, when you wrote this, did you have the whole world fleshed out first or did you sort of flesh it out as you started writing? So um, half and half. So I had a, a large part, the main premise of the world I built beforehand. But then as I was writing, I started fleshing out more and more of it. So I, um, I started for, so in my sci-fi, I did the big thing of creating the full world and then writing a, a series around it. And I realized how stifling that can be. So for this, I more I set forth the skeleton and the foundation, and then I built the world around what I had written instead. Uh, and that's what I found a lot more fun to write because it, it didn't it didn't uh, hem me in, and also it just wasn't so stressful. I, I love world building, but sometimes it can get a little bit stressful keeping everything consistent. Yeah. So do you have like a universe bible that you keep running, or is it all canon in your head? So. Um, about half and half. There is a uh, most of it is uh, written uh, is in a Bible. Um, I've got law articles all over my website. 
um, multiple attempts to get a wiki together. Um, main problem with the wiki is just that sometimes a detail, I literally just want to say, vampires are in here. You kind of know what a vampire is. Do I really need to explain this? Um, and, um, but yeah, most of, uh, but a lot of it is also in my head, which can be a little bit stressful. And I just wish that someone would go through the book and just like start writing down everything that's canon and make the wiki for me. Please, listener, if you really, really like wikis, can you just go to, um, to um, catram, yeah, catraman.wikia, or is it .fandom now? They confuse me, sorry. They, they keep changing their domain. It's one of those free wiki sites. Um, you just Google catraman wiki and it'll probably come up with it. And um, uh, uh, so I've got stuff on there. And there's, uh, and my website's got a lot of law articles that keep things about the world consistent. Uh, so yeah, I would say half and half to answer that question. Okay. So um, do you have a favorite, you know, because we're talking about some of the wee beasties you have in there. Do you have a favorite of the uh, monsters that, that you brought into this world? I really like dealing with demons in the Catramond universe. So demons in the Catramond universe are um, leftovers of the essence of creation. So they typically always have, um, so, so they always embody the purest form of some sort of element or concept and the problem is that purest form of many concepts is really bad so that's why demons are going to be dangerous almost all the time because the purest form of violence is really ultra violence or the purest form of even excess is going to be way too excessive so um even though technically not all demons are going to be bad um a lot of them end up being bad especially the ones which end up popping up and dealing with mortals because they are because they've got this compulsion to do what their essential being is uh, but i find them really interesting to write about because there's because i get I, I got to do a lot of research into um biblical demons into demons from other mythologies and folklore and um into african uh, mythology and also just make up my stuff so demons are very fun to write about and they pop up throughout the series even though cat drummond's main target her main vendetta is against the undead which I do go into a lot of detail. They're not just like normal walking dead zombies. There's there's an actual, there's a science around it. I go into detail about how necromancers work and how the undead come to be and all that. They're not just run-of-the-mill zombies. Um, but uh, demons are definitely the funnest for cats to deal with, especially because she, she can't just stab them to death. They're too powerful for that. Okay. So uh, this would be a part we're going to pause before we dive more deeply into the story itself. And we're going to talk about this cover. So how did you come up with this cover? I mean, it's an amazing piece of art and you're already getting love letters for the, for the model on it, but <laughs> what's the story of this art? And then while, while we talk, I'm going to zoom in for the pieces so you can see her weapons, which I like the sword on the right, the, uh, mm. the golden one. It's got the, mm. the wrist or the, the guard. I'm not familiar enough with swords to get the terminology right with the little spikes yeah kind of and you got uh the details on the belt buckle which looks like a skull with crossed something behind it yeah so in book one she's much more unprofessional so she's got a cobbled together uniform um in the uh, in the actual book it's described that she's basically using in the early part of the book she's using um sports gear that she's like like hockey pads things that she's brought together you know like a doctor's mask you know uh, um so, uh, so probably just like a well, COVID mask. No, not even a doctor's mask. Um, and um, the, but the, the swords that she uses. Um, so she uses a sword uh, um, in the first book called uh, Dusak, which is a 
Fun. Uh, I think it's a, it's a Chekhin um, dueling blade. And I, I did a lot of research to see because I thought it would be quite, if you have to use a sword against zombies, um, it's got a nice, it, it's um, resilient, it's not going to snap easily, but it's also not going to get stuck inside the zombie's flesh. So you can pull it out, you can do some slices. So it's a nice combination of being resilient, but also fast. Um, so I briefed the cover designer, which is Deranged Doctor Design um, Company. Very good. They, they're exceptional um, a company. Really like working with them. Um, now, Dusax, they're not really, they're kind of an exotic blade. So that's not what a Dusak actually looks like, but it's the closest thing they could. Um, so I'm, I'm fine with that because um, I know that I can't get it exact. Unless I hire an extremely expensive um, uh, uh, illustrator. And um, especially when making the first book in a series that you're not gonna, uh, that you know is not gonna, uh, uh, you don't, you're not sure it's gonna be successful. But also at the same time, I only really started being able to make enough money to be able to take a lot of risks in this uh, business after writing quite a few of the Cat Ramen series. So I didn't really have that freedom to go for an illustrator early on. But I'm very pleased with what um, Deranged Doctor Design has done for the series. Um, this is what Cat looks like. As you said, people have fallen in love with what she looks like. And what I love is that they do take my design notes and uh, implement them as much as they can. And what I know a lot of readers love is that I do I do not sexualize cats on the cover. So, and that's something a lot of urban fantasy and paranormal stuff does. And you can see it's even with like the mainstream stuff like uh, Kate Daniels and uh, Mercy Thompson is that they um, take these characters who within the book are supposed to be, you know, just uh, independent strong and you know, a badass w- a woman and then they just have them scantily clad and they try to like basically sell us as if it's borderline erotica i didn't want that for cat and i think that and a lot of uh, readers have sh- said in their reviews and uh, in social media that they appreciate that they, they literally will start reading this because they can look at the cover and they know that they're not going to be getting smut or a, a, a perpetual dams on distress they're getting someone who is a professional monster hunter even if she's only part-time in the first one <laughs> So you said it's a Dusak. You talk about the single-edged German cutlass style. Oh, it's a German, yeah. Germany is a big place. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no Dusak. All right, I I, I googled it. Oh, yeah. I didn't German know off the top of my head. Yeah, I'm yeah. not I'm not that much of a history nerd, mm. uh, but I just was curious what the actual sword looks like. It's not too far off. Yeah, that was, was good. And again, we'll pull up so you can look at it, dear listener. It's just uh, and the the pommel guards. And the Dusak style are so all over the place that that it all works. So I, I think they did an amazing job. Um, the cover colors really work. I think there's it's dark, but with enough of the light, it really pops. And I think the uh, sort of whimsical nature of the font you use for the title, mm. uh, I really like it. Um, I you know, and I, I don't say that lightly. Sometimes I, I I'm just nice about the cover, but this one I actually think the art is kind of cool. Uh, it's not bad for photo manipulation. So. Um, and, uh, for the books that follow on, um, do you, are you able to move the, um, the model around or is it a static pose in all of the covers? So I don't know, uh, the cover designer secrets, but they have mentioned things about rendering the pose. So I think they have some in-house software that allows them to actually take some elements and shift them around quite substantially. So you'll see that um, on the different the different covers, if you go on Amazon and go through the Cat Drummond uh, series, she's got a different pose in every single um, uh, series. In fact, for the upcoming book that should be out next year, uh, Shadow Realm, 
she they have her sitting which is the first time that she's actually sitting in any of the uh books she's um the, the lowest she's ever gotten is she's squatting in one of the uh, in one of the books uh book seven um yeah so they definitely there's a lot of freedom uh, i think the only thing that they really actually take from the photos her head uh, i've seen actually the source photos um where the because they've asked me to like when they're not sure about which head they want to use they're like saying to me like this models all of her uh, poses it's actually a fitness model so it's quite funny i was just thinking <laughs> i wonder what the uh, model would think if you knew that she was posing for like a, a yoga photo shoot and then she realizes now she's carrying like two swords and fighting zombies um but i think that the you that the uh, body itself is actually computer generated that's cool. I, I'm curious about that because some of the authors that did stock photos that get used on some of the more mature, shall we say, books. Yeah. And yeah. You, you do wonder, it's like uh, <laughs> what they would say if they knew where some of their the modeled stock photos get used. But uh, I've, I started seeing because, you know, we've looked at some of the stock model stuff, although you can't really use that as much on the kind of sci-fi I write. But, you know, you looked at some of the terms of contract for like Shutterstock and whatnot, and they start to specify, like, cannot be used on this type of product. <laughs> so, but yeah, they did a really good job with this cover. I really dig it. I like the the lighting. It makes a good, uh, good image. So now when you picked the image for the book, and then we'll move on to the book itself, but when you picked the the model did you redesign the book around what they found or did they find something that was very close to what the actress or the character looks like so um they sent that so when i sent them my brief they have they sent like a form and i basically described what she looks like and i was lucky that uh, in my sci-fi i made the mistake of not really understanding what my char main character looks like it was too generic but with cats i knew very clearly what she was to look like, but I also chose something that isn't going to be too hard to replicate. So in a degree, I wrote it with a business thing in mind. I wanted a dark-haired um, woman in her early 20s, maybe could go even mid, and I said a ponytail or bun. I said uh, blue eyes, and I think if you zoom in far enough, you might see that they actually did specify that, um, that she's got blue eyes. Um Thank, yeah. uh, I hope so. Oh, cool. Yeah. And um, and that's edited because the main model actually has brown eyes. Um, so that's nice attention to detail. And um, so that's this, uh, in general, that's what I had uh, together. Now, it, we always have our in our head what our characters look like. And I, would, I will admit that when I'm imagining my character without looking at the cover, she looks slightly different. But I think that's always going to happen. I think all readers have their own image of what a character looks like as well. Um, like even when I'm reading Lord of the Rings, I don't necessarily imagine Orlando Bloom as uh, Legolas. It's hard. I probably I do because he was so perfect for that role. But <laughs> I, it's always be slight differences, a little bit of an uncanny valley type thing. Okay. The uh, the, the new thing that's gonna and then we'll get back to your stories. That's gonna be interesting is they've got websites where you can get like images that look real, like they're real people, but they're co completely computer generated. Mm -hmm. Which I, I'm curious to see how soon, how long before that gets started using in covers. That'll be really cool. Or yes. possibly very creepy. <laughs> yeah, some of them were, or were in the uncanny valley territory where they're very creepy, and some of them are like, "Oh, I can't tell. That's not a real person." Mm. So, all right. So we've talked about the book cover. So, what would your 30 second elevator pitch be for the Cat Drummond series, or specifically book one? So, um, to quote a reviewer, "If you like The Witcher crossed with Buffy the Vampire Slayer." Then you'll love this series. If you want to see a underdog with a with an extremely very, um, 
Sorry, I'm not doing the 30 seconds thing as I'm it's going off the track. I don't like uh, um, time limits. This is why I write and I don't speak. <laughs> um, if you like a, a, a nice interactions between two characters which are both earnest but have their own disagreements and they're going to be talking with each other because that's a big element is the go the relationship between cat and trace the ghost inside her head and you also want to see some really cool monster hunting where i go into detail about the research into the monsters the preparations the tracking and then the fight itself and if you like in-depth world building combined with some really nice um character development for the main character and also her uh, um, the side characters uh, I think you'd really enjoy this book. I gave the the, the premise earlier of a UC, of a university student hunting monsters to pay the bills, but I think that's the best thing is probably also just if you like the Witcher meets Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Okay, so what do you think makes the Cat Drummond series special in the crowded field of urban fantasy? Mm. I think uh, so. Initially, to narrow the field, a lot of urban fantasy has um, there's a distinction between um, open world urban fantasy where magic's out in the open which is the rarer one then there's the hidden world one where magic's kept secret um personally i prefer it when it's out in the open uh, because i like to see the interaction between the modern world and the magic so cats definitely like that and i go into huge detail where i haven't just wiped out civilization it's more of a transition so the governments weren't just like deleted off the map they had to adjust and some of them broke up. Some of the large countries don't look like what they look like right now. Like the United States is only 13 states now. Um, and uh, the, and Utah owns the entire West Coast. Um, so you can look at the map. Yeah. You can read uh, this. I have a, a thing of uh, United States after the cataclysm as a law article on my website. Interested in that. Um, and... Um, uh, what was the question again? Sorry, I got trapped into thinking <laughs> into the alternative history. <laughs> so, so what do you think makes your story special? Oh yes, yes. The, you you trapped me with the else history. You, you know, you, <laughs> that's my uh, kryptonite. Yeah, mine too. I get it. Yeah, no. <laughs> okay, so Cat herself is a unique character. Now, there's a lot. Of, she's there's similarities because you know it's going to be with action here uh, with the female strong prota strong female protagonist. From a lot of open fantasy like kate daniels mercy thompson all that but i genuinely do feel the cat is and uh, um her own unique person who brings something to the table that none of those other characters do she's still finding herself but not in a sort of whiny young adult coming of age story that a lot of people are used to she is self-assured but she still has a lot of things where she needs to deal with and to learn so as opposed to someone like kate daniels where you start reading as she's almost in the beginning of her career, I'm sorry, in the middle of her career, where she's already an established experienced monster hunter, Kat is someone who's still proving herself, and you get to follow her journey from the beginning. And I think that's something which is really, really special, and because you mean that you do become really attached with her and all of her friends as they're engaging in this unique uh, universe. Another thing is, it's not set in the United States or in the uh, Northern Hemisphere, which is very unique, and it is unique... Um, South African flavor to it. Um, so if you're looking for something that's not set in, you know, your neck of the woods, definitely try this. And if you're a South African, definitely try this again because there's very little <laughs> um, urban fantasy which just set in South Africa and the get-go anyway. Okay. So is Elon Musk in your story? <laughs> um, should, should actually, maybe, but I can uh, um, steal something from Rick and Morty and have Elon Tusk. Um, <laughs> the, yeah. Um, 
because it started in 1991, a lot of stuff changes. And I also try to minimize um, proper nouns just because, you know, it, get, it gets into, um, you can get into shit like that. So open secret, Elizabeth II is still alive in my book, but I don't, I haven't referred to her as her first name yet. Just because, you know, I like, even though it is set in, the, uh, in our world, I do try to keep a little bit of the escapism going and I don't want to date my books too much. Um, and uh, so also like the, the Zulu King is an, actually a character, but I didn't want to use the real Zulu King because that can lead to a lot of messes. So I used a fictitious Zulu King. But that's also, the, that's just me being legally prudent. Okay. So which tropes do you feel like part-time Monster Hunter hits the best? I think found family, which is uh, something that a lot of uh, urban fantasies have. Um, I also think that definitely there's the the monster hunting trope itself. Uh, strong badass female protagonists. I think it does. Um, I'm trying. I don't know the name of the trope, but a um, a nice combination of a an ever present companion, which is constantly able to provide some sort of advice. Where Trace is a mentor, but he's a, but in a way he's a flawed mentor. But I would say found family is probably the one that uh, hits the best. Okay, that's a uh, that's always a good one that works in a lot of mill sci-fi too. Mm. So, so which genre or subgenres do you think the story fits into? We've talked about urban fantasy, but is it in any of the other categories when you when you you know sort of think about the nature of the story? So, um, action adventure to a large extent, which is you know um, quite general, but there's also these horror elements to it. There's some def genuinely scary sections throughout the series. Um, as someone who personally finds horror films really terrifying a lot of time, I like to try to scare my readers. Um, the difference is the cat can overcome a lot of the problems. So it doesn't, it's not pure horror in the sense that it's just completely, you know, terrifying and there's despair and there's nothing they can do, uh, that cat can do. Um, there's also, there's a mystery. Cat has to solve a lot of mysteries. There's a little bit of political thriller in there. Because there's um, conspiracies, almost like Da Vinci Code things with secret societies and trying to uncover uh, decades-long uh, um, secrets and conspiracies. Use the word conspiracies far too much, right, in the last few seconds. And I'd say that later in the series is also a little bit of military fantasy as well. Actually, you know, and it's actually quite a lot. If you, if you think about Kat as a soldier of a different kind, and she does fight, you know, bullets wheel and gun wielding enemies later on there's definitely some fantasy military stuff there and i could do go into the detail that i think people are like of how would warfare work if you combine tanks with fireball throwing mages and how is it and is the uh, and how does conventional warfare change as a result in fact um one of the spin-offs i do want to write in the future is going to be a pure military fantasy following um which is going to be one of the historical events from the main series which is going to show um, some uh, CDF, which is Cape Defense Force, which is the na the Cape is where um, Cat is from, facing off against um, the Zulu Empire troops on their border, and but they end up being locked in a settlement by demons, and they have to work together, uh, even though they're um, enemies, to overcome this darker force, and that's going to explore a lot of um, the change between how these conventional militaries have had to adjust for the um, advent of magic and monsters. Okay. So let's talk about the story itself. So what can you tell us, aside from the fact that she's a university student, and uh, what can you tell us about Kat Drummond that makes uh, her stand out in the crowded field of sci-fi and fantasy? 
So she is a nerd. She loves her uh, history and she loves uh, um, the research. So she's smart. She looks into things. She will do her research. But also she's a um, still a young adult. So a lot of the time she will try to shirk while also being earnest. So she will have that constant combination, which I think a lot of us understand, of wanting, having the ambition to do something, but also sometimes you really just want a nap. Um, which sure. is something which I think is lacking a lot of time in um, some of the books I've read. Um, she plays video games in the, uh, throughout the series when she has time. She stopped re, uh, She stops later on because you just get a little bit too frenetic. And um, she loves old um, alt-rock. So um, Fleetwood Mac, um, The Smiths, uh, just um, on all that good stuff. She listens to and it's referenced throughout the series. Um, throughout the series, she's changing her ringtone for different things. So then they'll play um, David Bowie, some Fleetwood Mac in there. And um, I use quite a lot of the old music, which I really like um, inside the series. In fact, on my YouTube channel, you can check on the playlists. I put together some of the music that is mentioned throughout the, ser uh, the series. And that cat would listen to or uh, spoke about um, in particular scenes. Cool. So are there any secondary characters that you were um, especially fond of? Mm, uh, definitely. So um, I love her um, her agent who helps her get jobs, Conrad Coy. He's, he's very fun to write. And he's a very complex character. And he grows as the series goes on. I really enjoy what starts as quite a minor silent um secondary character named Gaim Gebe but I developed him so much that I ended up actually writing a full spin-off about his life and uh so he's a very much got a good place in my heart he's like one of the co-stars of actually book 13 he's the co-star of book 13 he gets a uh, POV sections dedicated to him um there's Cindy Giles which is one of her uh, later mentors that I'm going to be writing a prequel trilogy from her perspective so they definitely a lot, and there's just many, many more. And I would also have to mention Dwer the Pixie and a Alex the Cat, because those are fan favorites that I'm constantly, whenever I have someone tries to make a poll in the fan group about who's, you know, what's your favorite character, that all the people just flood in and start lexing the cat and the pixie. <laughs> in fact, there's actually a meme talking about, um, it's going, you know that meme of the, uh, um, of the blonde woman screaming at the cat eating salad? Yes. So that, that's a template, and it's got a bunch of, it's got cats, and it's got some of the other characters, complex character arcs, um, pointing at the cat. And um, and I've, uh, and the cat's been replaced to look like the description of Cat's Cat Alex. And it says, um, let me actually get it up. Uh, cool, so... Oh, uh, when everyone chooses a, a uh, choose a cat over your complex character arc, it just shows like the cat and Treth and Bre yeah. uh, Brett Callahan just crying as the cat, as it just shows Alex just uh, sitting there eating salad. <laughs> nice. So, yeah, uh, can beat a cat. was there aside from the monsters and the undead, were there any bad guys in the in the story that that you could tell us about without giving us any spoilers? Oh yeah, that's actually one of the tro tropes I forgot about. That uh, the real monsters were, uh, monster were humans all along, uh, not in the cat Scooby Doo sort of way, but in the way that um, humans can be dicks. And um, so necromancers definitely—they're the ones creating the undead. So they are the so even though the undead might be the ones biting people, they were brought into this world by humans, and it's definitely uh, human or human-like masterminds behind a lot of the problems. So yeah, the the main villains are all at least humanoid 
as, as far as I can say. Okay. So speaking of characters, you sound like you've put um, Kat through a lot of um, unpleasant situations. So yeah. if she met you in a back alley, how do you see that interaction playing out? Is she going to kill you, scare you, cut your head off? What's going to happen? Um, I think we'd get along personally. She's quite reasonable. Uh, she's not, uh, um, she can be gung ho sometimes, but she does try to talk things through mostly because she knows how sore it is to try, uh, it can be on your muscles to try to break, uh, to snap bone with a sword. Um, so she'll try to avoid conflict a lot of the time, but she also knows that not to hesitate when the time comes that she has to kill something. Okay, so this is the part where we ask you to give us a peek behind the curtain and see how the sausage was made. I think I mixed that metaphor up. But anyway, <laughs> so were there any cool scenes that you had to cut from book one, part-time Monster Hunter, that were kind of cool, even if you might mm. use them someday? So in the first book, I really wanted to have this um, drawn-out chapter, which was going to be a cat basically uh, exploring a ghost train. And the reason I wanted to do this was because there's a myth of a ghost car in an area on, in Cape Town called Okopsevech, um, uh, which is this like road over a mountain. And people, you know, have reported, you know, this, this car that will drive at you and then disappear. You know, that, that typical thing. I think a lot of parts of the world have myths like that. And it got me thinking, what about ghost train? Because, you know, trains are always cooler. And um, we have abandoned railway lines in the Cape because of just mismanagement. Uh, and in Cat Drummond's universe, um, because of monsters and stuff, the railway networks have shut down completely. So I had this idea of what happens if people are reporting that there's this, tra this train running and now she's been hired to investigate. And I didn't get to write because it just didn't fit in, um, in book one. But I ended up writing it as a short story for an anthology that I don't think is going to happen. It might, though. But the um, the Spectral Express, which is the name of the uh, the short story, will be available in some capacity soon, sometime this year. So I did actually get to write that down. So that's nice. Nice. So finally, what can you tell us about the universe? You mentioned it's all history. You mentioned you know sort of there's this cataclysmic event that happens um, and creates the monsters. But other than that, what what all can we expect from this world? Is is that pretty much the lay of it, or is there more that you haven't uh, elaborated? So it's um... What I really wanted to do with it is I wanted to be able to draw from any mythology or source of fantasy that I could to throw these monsters and these concepts at uh, Cat. So effectively what happens is that in 1991, something happens which allows these rifts to open and bring in monsters and magic into Earth intermittently. Um, and this means not just monsters, it's also beings from other universes. So the Greek gods, some of them have been trapped on Earth. Uh, Odin is now the prime minister of the Scandinavian League. Um, the fairies basically prop up the English government. Uh, the, uh, there's a dragon which is now nesting on top of Mount Rushmore. And in fact, you know, the, the, the Gadsden, uh, don't trade on me. There's now the snake's been replaced by a dragon on some of the state flags. Um, and um, there, so... There's a lot of cool things where I get to like just delve into all the mythologies that I find interesting and just pull them in. Some South African stuff, um, Greek stuff, Norse, and just like some, and also just like random fantasy. And I get to make up my own things. Like I made up my own type of orcs, which, you know, just taking from different things, some Warcraft, some Warhammer, some Lord of the Rings, and just making my own little mythology around orcs. And what is also cool about it is because it is technically a multiverse, because people can travel to other worlds, because it's hard, um, 
I do have room to write other books in the catverse, but not necessarily set on Earth. Just using the same magic system and the same rule set that there is this in-between that um, holds all these worlds together. Nice. So the currently there are 16 books out uh, in the Monster mm -hmm. Hunter, or excuse me, the Cat Drummond series, the which part-time Monster Hunter is a part. Uh, but is their story done from there? Where do you see it going after book 16? So I'm so the met plan is so next year I'm going to be releasing uh, Shadow Realm, which is book uh, 15 of the main series. So we're excluding spin uh, spinoffs. Then I'm going to be writing uh, currently named classified because I really I, I want to hit it with the cover uh, the cover reveal. I know what it's going to be called, but you guys uh, aren't going to know yet. And then book 16 is going to be the final in this chapter of Cat's Life. Then I'm going to write um, a prequel trilogy for Cindy Giles. And then a prequel series, not sure how long yet, for Conrad Coy. And then after that, I'm, I want to write another series, which is going to be in its own universe. But I might return to Cat, but it would be years later. And but that that's that's a like, that's a maybe. That, that, so I'm gonna so I'm gonna be writing a satisfying conclusion, but there's still room to return. Okay, so every universe has their own liter uh, internal. Um, consistent rules of science, technology, and magic. So what kind of tech and magic can we expect? So the, there's two types of magic users in the Catramid universe, but um, sorcerers and wizards are the main terms. Wizards gain, basically gain their magic from memorizing words of power, but the words of power themselves, the words have power. So if you imprint it on your brain, it imprints a little bit of its own essence on your brain. So if you memorize a, a, the spell for creating fire it's effectively like having fire in your brain so it's a physically painful experience so wizards are these hard fought extremely meticulous and strong world people who have to literally like memorize spells and then like purposefully forget them so they don't burn out and um they're able to create really complex magics and i uh, especially in one of the spin-offs which is called werewolves and wizardry with stars a wizard i go into a lot of detail about how it works um and they're the ones who I, I really like wizards because they have to earn their power through um, particular uh, through hard won self sacrificial uh, research. Then they're sorcerers who are basically born with magic. They can only really use one type of magic, which is their affinity, which is typically elemental, but sometimes not. It can sometimes be some um, like there's some some who can channel vitality. They can heal people directly. Um, sorcerers are typically influenced by their affinity, so. A fire, so a pyromancer, someone with a fire affinity will typically be quite like quite confrontational, quite aggressive, energetic, that type of thing. Someone who's a cryomancer might, you know, be cold, emotionless, things like that. Someone um, like uh, God forbid is a corruption uh, a mage. So someone who can and corruption magic is this a casual term for effectively affect uh, um directly damaging by uh, uh, um, biological functions so just like shutting down someone's organs with a spell some people do have that as an affinity and those people aren't okay they they, they do <laughs> their affinity kind of is a mental illness but uh, so there's this always costs so i always like the idea that magic isn't free there's always something that has to that's used and something that's lost and that, so there is so there can be an even field so even though magic is very devastating in this world there's still space for people with guns and swords and people to uh, and normal people to interact with the magic users. 
So of all the tech and magic that you created for this world, is there any that you'd rather have, you'd like to have for daily use? Mm. I love purification magic, which is the one, which is the result of always getting the quiz that I made for what type of affinity would you want. Um, and purification magic is healing and uh, getting rid of basically the bad juju in the world. So there is a like an actual metaphysical good and evil in the Cat universe. So even though I will explore, there's a lot of gray, there are things which are universally evil and things which are universally good, at least on a magical level. And purification is magically good. It eliminates evil. You, it eliminates curses. It can heal the sick. It can heal the wounded. And I think um, it's extremely useful. I'd want healing magic. It would make me a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> well, that answers my next question. The next question we normally ask is how you would abuse that uh, that power. But you you just said get rich, so I'm I'm, I'm down for it. Um, so uh, obviously your books have fantastical creatures in them. So when you create them, like how do you go about doing that? Do you let your nightmares inspire you? Do you pull from folklore and legend? Um, do you use nature? Like what, what inspires the, the creatures that your character fights? So most of the time it is from folklore and mythology, uh, but then I'll put, I'll throw in my own little spin uh, just to make things a little more interesting. And so they, you know, not just be predictable, um, but nightmares literally have actually inspired some of my most memorable uh, monsters where I have actually had dreams where these things appeared and I decided, Hey, that would be a cool scene. And I just threw it into the book. Um, in book three, there's a very memorable scene, which literally I had a dream like that. And I just decided to put it in there and people really liked it. So I think that worked. So is this book, is this series available in audiobook or is it just out in print and ebook right now? So I book one, Part-Time Monster Hunter, is available as an audiobook on Audible and all the and a lot of other retailers, including Authors Direct, which is the cheapest price and I get the biggest cut. So if you want the audiobook, please go to Authors Direct to get it. Um and but the other the sequels getting audiobooks is contingent on the success of book one's audiobook. So if you want to get the rest of the series and audio just help me get book one successful <laughs> uh but otherwise it's all on kindle unlimited and uh, amazon print on demand okay so um before we we wrap this up we have to ask so what age range would you say so this book is suited for so we've got families that listen and sometimes they they'll read together which is totally cool mm. what age group do you think this book is appropriate for like like where would you say the youngest potentially was so there is swearing so um even though some people apparently don't notice and i'm like dude like i literally just look through the entire book and i know how many times i say the f word <laughs> um and they just don't notice for some reason um it, it can be quite gritty and violent. Like the opening line is describing the smell of rotting corpses. So it depends. I think a lot of families can be different. And it depends on your family's uh, views of violence and views of um, swearing. There's no sexual content. Um, and I think that they, if there's any sexual in the window, it's very minor. And I think it's only like max twice in the entire series. Um, so it's very um, wholesome on that angle. Um, so I would say my instinct is 14, 16 up, but it just, but it also always just depends on your family's exposure to these sorts of things. Um, if the hunger games is fine for your kids, this will be fine for them. Okay. 
So clearly this interview is winding down. Was there anything about part-time Monster Hunter and the Cat Drummond series that we didn't ask that you want to tell us? Mm, I think you covered all the bases. Okay. Um, so before we let you go, dear listener, we'd like to remind you to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right books. Uh, it's all about the... Um, teamwork between author and creator and the reader so you know they write the book for you you read it so that way other people can find it and you get more of the thing you like because the economy and the free market responds in kind so uh and legend has it when you write your hundredth review the the author gets his own unicorn and he can make steaks so mm. there's that you wouldn't want to deprive poor nicholas of a unicorn steak would you oh of course it's so tasty Exactly. So, so how do you have your steak? Do you, you one of those weirdos who puts ketchup on it? No, no, definitely not. Uh, okay, I wouldn't want to ruin a good unicorn steak. Yeah, exactly. I want to be able to revive it from my stomach. <laughs> so, <laughs> speaking of, do you actually cover that? Just it's random. You know, we were about to do the closing, but random thought. Like some of these monsters, clearly you kill them. Do you just they just sit there and decay, or do they actually like? Huh. I bet I could make a I don't know an orc steak. Oh no, there are uses. Um, to talk about unicorns in particular, they have they've been cultivated. They uh, there's an agricultural industry for unicorns, and one of the characters despises unicorns and calls them um, horse wannabe bastards, um, hates them, and so that's what one of the things that comes up. And uh, there's a lucrative industry in selling monster parts. In fact, Cat makes most of her income actually selling the parts from the monsters to alchemists to freaky eaters um and some of them she doesn't want to ask what they're doing with it so if you uh if you were in this world would you would you be willing to eat some of the things that people are eating or would you like no i'll stick to cows a, a dragon steak might be nice <laughs> interesting do you describe what some of the food tastes like or you just leave it to people's imagination what a dragon I'll leave it, I'll leave like? it to imagination yeah <laughs> i know there is actually but the conventional foods more like it i'm not talking i don't really go too much into detail with food Okay, fair, fair. All right, so as we bring this puppy to a close, Nicholas, how can uh, listeners and, and viewers find you? So my website, nicholaswoodsmith.com. That's wood with an E at the end. I know it's confusing. Um, well, yeah, the cover is right over here, so you can use that as reference. And um, I'm on Facebook. My Facebook page is um, just Nicholas Woodsmith, and then there should be one there with author and brackets. So that's the best way to follow me. I very inactive on Twitter. You're going to, I'm no longer being paid to be on Twitter. So I hardly post on it. So, um, and in my newsletter, you can subscribe to it from a tab on my website and that'll be the best way to keep, in, uh, um, keep tabs on me. Okay. And you can find us dear listener on Twitter at twitter.com backslash sf underscore fantasy underscore show sierra foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show you can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com again blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com uh seska normally answers those for us so be kind because she might stab you uh we have our facebook group where all the shenanigans happen which is facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast again backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast you can join our website over at anchor.fm backslash blasters tack and tack blades again 
anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades where you can also support the show for as little as 99 cents a month you can help keep the light on or if you want to support us you can also go over to buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr handley again buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr handley be sure to put in the comment sections for the podcast and i promise i will keep my co-host doc seska and nick garber uh duly intoxicated they will drink until their liver surrenders uh, and I will continually stuff unicorn steaks in their gullets until they uh, explode. So that's a nice mental image for you. And he will write that in his next book. I'm sure Nicholas swears on it. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, oh, we didn't do the the one important question for the Sci-Fi Shenanigans and Blasters and Blades podcast. How do you feel about pineapple on pizza? Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay, that's a right answer. Uh, we actually kicked Doc off the show. She wasn't allowed on today because she wanted to have a pineapple pizza. And I'm like, nope, not about that life. <laughs> but uh, all right. Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and Doc Saska, I am J.R. Hanley. And this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom.